on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's Talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. All right, here we go. Oliver gets inside the huddle with Ian Koziara to talk about performing Fidelio for the death and having a darker, lower tenor voice that works well in German repertoire, but we won't say that word. (laughs) Plus two-minute drill. The Met Lucia is a flop, but director Simon Stone has already been rehired. If you're watching on TDO, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Get that full show. Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, you know what to do. Also, send us a voice memo. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your hot take. Oliver Camacho, great to see you as always. What's on your mind? Are we talking about sports right now or is it not time for that yet? Sports. It's sports. It's always sports time, Oliver. (laughs) And that's Weston Williams, everybody. Uh, we have we have no Matt Cummings and no Ashley today, but uh, we'll make up for them in more ways than you can even imagine. More ways than <laughs> none. Yeah. So um, the 18-year-old Spanish uh, tennis player, Carlos Alcaraz, has broken into the top 10. He's actually world number nine right now, mm-hmm. and he's on track to be a major contender in the French Open, the clay court tournament. Uh, he, I think he's already won two finals this year and he's just like, he's the giant slayer, uh, when it comes to other players in the top 10 and, uh, he's a giant slayer. I really should watch out. True. Uh, and (laughs) Tihihi, um, Novak Djokovic's own tournament in Belgrade. Uh, he was in the, Djokovic was in the final yesterday, but lost in three sets last third set, six, zero to Andre Rubio. Mm. Ouch. Yes. <laughs> oh. Sorry, Novak. Having he a bad probably year. had COVID. Who knows? So. Weston Williams, what sport are you practicing these days? Uh, well, I, I tried a new sport this weekend. I was out of town for a uh, a wedding weekend for a friend of mine. I was in the bachelor party, and we went paintballing, which is a sport that I am bad at because I move slowly. Very deliberately, very precisely, very largely. And uh, let me tell you, I had to throw away my pants afterwards because there's no, <laughs> there was no saving them. Uh, but and I have several bruises, but I had a good time and I would do it again. You can get bruises from paintball, I think. Oh, yeah. I got uh, one right here, one right here. Oh, I'm man. not sure they're showing up on the camera. One right here if, uh, if, and one if, in other places that I can't talk about. If you're listening to the podcast, that, that, that was really gross. Sports in Chicago, this is just not a good time right now. The Bulls are on the brink of elimination against the Milwaukee Bucks. Cubs have lost seven of the last 10 games to go below 500. And the Blackhawks season will end on Friday because they didn't make the playoffs. Ugh. Bad, bad Monday, huh? I think we shall talk some more. Wait, wait, isn't game whatever five of the Bulls, uh, is that tomorrow? Oh. Yeah, but I, yeah, they're, they're gonna lose. Yeah, no, they've been so lopsided. <laughs> I'm so my okay. I have a friend that's visiting from France and was so excited. He bought tickets to go see the Bulls. That's awesome. And um, yeah, they just fell down so hard. Um, that's sad. Huddle up. 
Let's go inside the huddle. So uh, a few years ago, I heard this tenor, Ian Koshara, at the Steens Institute, um, the Young Artist Program at Rivania Festival. And um, he's just one of those voices where it's like, oh, oh, we're going to do that, huh? You know, where it's not an Italianate sound. It's not, a, you know, it's not like a sunny, you know, young, youthful tenor sound. He has that quality. And I won't say it, but like that suggests where his voice is going to go. Uh, we have a total it's a discussion. very heroic sound, I think. Um, well, could be. Um, but... You know, we end up deciding on what his Fock really is. Uh, but let's just say he sounds great in German music and he's still a young guy. He just turned 30. Uh, he just that's, won- that's incredible because I don't know if Ian would remember me, but he and I were at Chautauqua together. And Drink. it's like it's like the, the guy was born at like 55. And, and that's a compliment. <laughs> Yeah. He, he was so mature. Like all those young artists at Young Artist Programs, man, they're all like messing around. Like Ian's just so mature. Yeah, he's got his head on straight and he understands his voice, which is great. And he understands what he needs to do to like just sing healthy and see what happens. So um, we're going to start this interview listening to him sing a little Wagner. I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this is actually one of the Vais and This is Troima. Kajara with Zalman Kelber singing one of the Weisendorf leader of Wagner, Träume. Uh, welcome to Opera Box Score. And when was that recording made? Oh my gosh. I think that would have been 2017, maybe 2018. Okay. That was around the time that I first heard you sing, I think, at um, as a fellow of the Ravinia Steens Music Institute, which is uh, a program that I have a crush on. And I've heard many great singers there, like Nadine Sierra back in the day, and Misha Bruggers Gozman, and Amanda Forsyth was an artist uh, in that program. And uh, oh God, Samuel Hasselhorn. We were there the same year, 2014. I know. Um, and yeah, I remember hearing you sing for the first time, and just like. I mean, this is like ostensibly a sports podcast, and so I'm going to be doing a bad metaphor here, but um, 
you have like a fast ball or uh, maybe I should say like it put it in tennis terms like you you like know how to like pull the trigger on certain notes and it just you just know how to add a, a little bit of metal into the sound and uh, it just becomes like very thrilling and penetrating and it seems like you could do it in a lower part of your voice than most tenors can do it mm. I think tenors really enjoy you know pulling the trigger you know, uh, in the upper middle and above the passaggio. But you seem to be able to actually pull the trigger in uh, a more medium, medium low part of the voice, sure. uh, which begins to suggest a fock that maybe you're not comfortable being uh, considered in that fock yet. But I think a lot of people who first hear you sing, like start to get ideas like, oh, <laughs> we have one of these on our hands. And so we'll just dance around the, the that fog, but uh, let's just say Germanic tenor. Sure. Um, can you, do you remember the first time somebody recognized that quality in your voice and, you know, maybe talk to you, young man, did you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I actually do. It was, um, it was in an email I had just done my undergrad auditions. Um, so I was either 17 or 18. And, and the school, Lawrence University, to which I ended up attending, uh, in Appleton, Wisconsin? In Appleton, Wisconsin, okay. with, with Miss, uh, Zoe Reams and I were in the same class. Oh, wow. Fabulous singer. Mm. Um, but, uh, but I remember the coach saying, you know, you have the, you have the makings of the sort of German tenor, uh, sound, but of course, mm. you know, at age, 18 there's not a ton you can do about it so it's a matter of you know picking the right keys for mm -hmm. art songs when you're studying primarily that for the first couple of years and then being very particular about the the first aria as you start studying in your early 20s yeah so right now what seems to fit you very well is mozart mm -hmm. uh and uh later on we'll hear this really great for del mar that you sing and um you know, not all of the German tenors uh, have the ability to do the coloratura. And I think I even heard a trill in there. I was like, oh, <laughs> nice, you know. Um, is the coloratura something that you worked on or is that something that just came naturally to you? Or? I, I wish I could say that it was something, you know, I worked on, but it, it just came pretty naturally. Okay. Um, so is is Bach in you know the sphere of possibility for you or is that too too light for lack oh, of oh gosh i love Bach. Oh. I, I love handle too I, I it doesn't get offered that often if i'm honest you know yeah. the things that tend to get offered are uh you know wagner and some of the the early 20th century german composers semlinski mm -hmm. schreker uh berg um but i but i love that stuff of course well it's not hard to figure out like you know that you've done a lot of young artist programs uh and uh you know lindemann is one that you're associated with you did for three years and, yeah. and there are others um being the type of tenor that you are do you have maybe some stories about what people thought you could do and maybe maybe misfocked you or tried to give you stuff too early because just sure. there's that excitement in hearing a voice like yours you know yeah um I don't have any particularly, you know, egregious stories. I, you know, one of the things I really appreciated about the Met is because the, the season is so long and there's so much to do, um, you're able to get on stage, even in relatively small capacities, in operas that just don't get done that much in the U.S. So, you know, I got to be one of the squires in Parsifal in this, in the absolutely incredible production that has of that. 
you know, there there were a couple of who was it scenes. with Kaufman that one? Oh God, I uh, no. So so the original production was I, I was doing the 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 remount of it, which was Klaus okay. Florian Vogt, okay. which is a very different flavor of German tenor from from Jonas Kaufmann. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, there were definitely sort of scenes or arias that we were testing out in Lindemann and figuring out, you know, would this work well? Would this not work well? You know, I remember I had a, a, a moment for about six months with a uh, from Le Troyen, and that was, uh, a good stretch, but definitely a stretch, you know, uh, that was, that was a real challenge to see, okay, can, can my voice do this in a natural way? Um, but, but it was super cool. I really enjoyed it. Well, can you describe for maybe people who don't listen to as much opera as we do or as much singers as we do, like what you think the difference is between somebody who does German music well as opposed to somebody who has a more Italianate sound? Yeah, you know, I, I actually don't think it's that there's that much necessary difference. You know, I think there are there are certain things that are that tend to be typical of that. But you know, if you look at someone like Jonas Kaufmann and you look at someone like Klaus Florian Vogt, these are two people who sing tons and tons and tons of German repertoire and sing a lot of the same roles under completely different colors. Um, but I think, like, if I had to pick out one thing that I think is sort of characteristic of all the people who sing that kind of rep, it's it's the ability to uh, uh, either either beef up or blade up. Uh, the middle of the register over quite a quite a big orchestra. Um, you know, you're 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 expected to sing. You know, C's and D's in the middle of your range, at at a, at a volume or or with the cut that can make uh, singing over quite a large orchestra possible. You know, that happens in plenty of Italianate rep. It's just you're usually a fourth or fifth higher when you're when you're doing it. Where know? the voice has a natural brilliance to it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's why you tend to get a lot of people who sort of train up from baritone. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which admittedly I did sing, uh, some baritone in high school, um, so doing that kind of thing. Do you, so for those of us who don't have that ability, <laughs> is it a matter of like pouring on air or is there something you do with the resonance that gives that cut and is, and, and well, I'll let you answer the question first and I have a follow up question. So. Yeah, I think it usually has more to do with blade than with heft, right? I, and and I think you know there might be tenors who sing differently than me that that go the other way, but I think usually for me it's a matter of just adding a little bit of snarl and a slightly more forward placement. Um, usually, <laughs> it's it's not a good idea for me to like try and artificially beef up the sound, you know. Um, I, I've done it occasionally when I'm like doing an impression of a voice, you know. I, I'm thinking of the. Um, the moment in, you know, Schüder uh, Müllerin, there mm-hmm. in the in the fifth song on Fire Abends, there's a moment where the tenor can can if he wants imitate the the Meister. Yeah. The, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. And I I I would definitely do it there as a, as a funny thing, but but usually <laughs> just as a recipe for like cutting over an orchestra is usually a bad yeah. idea. So for me, it's more about blade. So this idea of blade is one I think I've known. Um, but I've never heard anybody use that term. That that is that a term that somebody taught you, like as a like a technical, you know, resonance placement type of thing. Yeah, I mean, I guess you know there are a lot of words that I think mm-hmm. sort of refer to roughly the same thing, whether mm-hmm. it be blade or ping or mm-hmm. snarl or or focus. I think they're all talking about roughly the same thing. Um, but but it's this this idea of a slightly more forward place, a slightly 
you know, emphasizing the trebliness of the sound mm-hmm. without removing the sort of support and dome that makes for an elegant and well-balanced apparatus. Right. So maybe this is what we've, we've kind of unpacked it for the audience, or maybe you're unpacking it for me. When you put your voice in this placement, uh, it no longer is bel canto. Oh, uh, maybe. Because then you don't have access to, you know, quick register changes or, um, you know, lots of, uh, you know, scaly passages, uh, even though we're going to hear <laughs> you sing for Del Mar in a minute, uh, which sort of is contradicting that. But um, I sure. think that's what it is. Like, I think people who sing this type of music don't like to move their voices fast because putting it in this spot uh you know it it's okay to like put it in the spot and then you can you know feel how you're cutting through the orchestra and to like go up and down very quickly and that like is maybe i don't know scary or like not not comfortable you know yeah um then you have people like lucia pop who could do it and then yeah so i there goes my theory just crumbling down you know <laughs> well no and I, and I and i think it depends on the circumstance right, right. so like so like for example with something like fort elmar yeah it's a bigger mozart orchestra but mm. I, I i'm never under any worries of being well heard over a mozart mm. orchestra i sort of can take for granted um that if i'm if i'm providing a well-balanced sound particularly in someplace like wolfcraft but really mm. anywhere against that kind of orchestra that i'm going to be heard fairly well Mm-hmm. Um, and which, which gives you a ton of freedom, right? To experiment with ideas. You know, Fort Omar is a long aria, mm-hmm. um, to give some real sotovoce moments and some real sort of shy, you know, uh, uh, the, the opposite extreme. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah. So, um, we were talking about, I've, I've wanted to talk about Fort Omar some more because we're going to hear it and we should just hear it right now. Let's just like, We've been talking about enough. So here it is. This is from the uh, Wolf Trap Opera performance. I don't know what year this is. Uh, maybe you do. Uh, 2018, I want to say. Okay, so not that long ago. Uh, this is with the Wolf Trap Opera Orchestra and Jeffrey McDonald. bit of Irmeneo's Aria for Del Mar to show that, yes, he can uh, do the stuff that Oliver cares about the most. <laughs> the, the, the legato, coloratura stuff. Um, but you're the one that brought up the word snarl. And I remember the first time I heard you sing, I was like, oh, well, 
Peter Grimes was the first thing that that came to mind. So sure. have you uh, already been offered a Peter Grimes or are you working on it or? Oh, I wish. I mean, for for me, my my sort of three favorite slash dream roles have been Ido Mineo, Parsifal, and mm. um, and Peter Grimes, and they're they're very different in lots of ways. But I actually think there's a common sort of tortured element to all of them. Mm-hmm. I would love to do Peter Grimes, but haven't been offered it yet. Yeah, I mean, there are moments in your voice um, that remind. I'm just, I don't know if people have said this to people, but that remind me of of John Vickers. And, uh, your, your own voice and like, it's your own tone quality. And so, but I mean, there's just something about like, especially in your lower register where there's a texture to your sound, uh, sure. that feels like, oh, that's going to be very exciting. You know, one day <laughs> it's already exciting. Don't get me wrong, but you know, you're one of these voices that feel just everybody's just waiting to see what's, what's going to happen. Uh, and will you sing Floristan? And apparently you do now. Yeah. Um, are you, what are you, 29 right now? Uh, just turned 30 a couple weeks ago. Okay. Uh, that's right. You just turned 30 because you just, uh, aged out of a competition you won. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like a minute Happened. ago. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It was the last year. <laughs> so that competition is a Chicago based competition for those who are listening elsewhere, uh, called Luminarts. Uh, and it's a very nice competition and, um, some uh they give you a nice amount of money so congratulations <laughs> <laughs> incredible a really wonderful organization by the yeah. way that that supports much more than just uh operatic singing yeah so like check them out po- poets and like jazz artists and yeah uh, other musicians so um okay so we really wanted to talk about this um la la phil is that what it was LA yeah, Philharmonic yeah. uh concert um fidelio uh, which you just finished. Yes. Uh, as Floristan, conducted by Gustavo Dudamel. So first I want to hear about, well, first I want to hear about the, the performance for the deaf. Uh, can you tell us about how that worked and like, w- did you have to do any extra preparation or was it all done by other people to help supplement, you know, the presentation for, um, you know, to make it more of a visual thing? Like I'm just, yeah. You know, I only read about it. Obviously, I haven't seen it. So I'd love to know what what the brainchild that was and, you know, what that experience was like. It was an undeniably incredible experience. Probably one of my favorites I've ever had on the stage. Um, You know, so it was a it was a combo platter. Um, All of the the normal German dialogue was removed and replaced with ASL uh, dialogue performed by the deaf or hard of hearing actors. Um, And so each role had two performers, a a singer and then an actor, who at times worked relatively separately and at times worked very closely together. And it sort of depended on the dramatic situation as to what we were doing with each other. Um, So so in the case of Floristan, you know, uh, one of my favorite moments in the entire opera was at the very beginning of Floristan's aria, where he was able to sort of essentially go into convulsions and I was directly behind him mostly obscured to the audience singing this sort of very famous pianissimo oh. yeah, molto, <laughs> molto crescendo uh which which is probably the the most fun note in the whole role to sing <laughs> <laughs> um but uh it, it was it was incredibly cool because there as a singer 
there's a certain palette of colors that are just not available to you because so much of what you're doing is regimented for you in the score. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and we, we run into this oftentimes when we have sort of more regie directors in Germany saying, oh, can you sing, you know, Ford Elmar while you're hanging upside down? And we're like, <laughs> no, probably not. Uh, <laughs> but when you've got an actor who isn't burdened by some of the athletic requirements of mm-hmm. singing, um, you know, the world is really their oyster. Um, and so we were able to experiment with really cool physical ideas that would be very different if there were more sort of concrete singing concerns at work. Mm-hmm. Um, so it created this really beautiful counterpoint also where each actor, each deaf actor, had a different level of deafness. So there were a couple who genuinely couldn't hear anything and were going off physical cues. Uh, but were they watching th- the conductor? Yeah. So they, they okay. watched the conductor. We also had an ASL prompter. Okay. Who was who was prompting them with lines if they if they forgot, and then um, they would also go off the physical the body language of the singer to to be sure where they were both emotionally and text uh, text wise. Uh, but but I happened to have uh, Josh was absolutely wonderful who probably had the most hearing of any of the actors on. Stage. So that was the actor paired with you. So. The actor paired with okay. me exactly. Yeah. So so what was super cool is you would get this counterpoint between actor and singer where each deaf actor was dealing with a very slightly different picture um, that they were getting from from the music and from the singer, ranging from going completely off the visual because there was no auditory input to having a relatively good idea of what the music sounded like um, and getting to add, infuse it with an element that that those of us who've grown up with hearing would, would often take for granted. Yeah. I mean... Was there a hearing audience in the in the house for that performance? Was it all only invited were deaf? Were at it was how many perform how many performances were there for for deaf audiences or hearing impaired audiences? So so it was three performances, uh, three days in a row, which is as Ouch. you know, yeah, <laughs> could could be could be a little bit of a challenge. But um, the all of the audiences were mixed, so the the front okay. fifteen rows or so were were reserved for deaf or hard of hearing audiences because we didn't have jumbotrons to show the signs on. So they wanted to make sure everyone could see the signs um, from a reasonable distance. But but the back, probably two thirds of the audience was hearing audiences. Okay. So I think, you know, one of the things that was super useful is, you know, we it's pretty obvious, of course, that as someone who, who grew up with hearing, that you know, they're getting to, to see an element of an art form that they're not accustomed to. But mm-hmm. I also think it was equally, if not more, wonderful for people who, who grew up with hearing uh, to, to get to see this this uh, expressive art form that we're often just not exposed to at all. Yeah, I don't know what that, I mean, I can imagine what it looks like. I mean, I, I, tend to, I attend dance performances and I know a little bit about the dance world and I feel like um, opera, we cut ourselves off at the feet by not embracing movement, you know, enough. But I also am a singer, so I know how hard it is to sure. concentrate on something else when you have to sing, you know, uh, florist dance entrance <laughs> <You know? laughs> and sure. the rest of that opera, you know. So yeah, yeah, it's sort of a marathon once you once you start, you know. Exactly. Um, yeah. So that's that's a big thing, and you got to do it with Ryan Speedo Green, who is like the like fastest rising star. I mean, like he's. It's been a slow burn, honestly, for him. It hasn't been like overnight, but it seems like this is the year that like everybody's going to learn that guy's name, you know? Oh, incredible singer. Um, 
And Gustavo Dudamel was conducting this thing. Um, What was, I mean, I've been talking about this guy for a long time on another platform that I have. Um, Who knew that he was going to become an opera conductor? Yeah, it all kind of happened fast there, didn't it? Yeah. Um, He's really wonderful. I, I mean, the... The thing that I walked away most with him, he has an incredible ear for tempo. Um, and I think, you know, particularly with something like, like, uh, Fidelio, that, that is, uh, that can, can feel a little long if you're not very careful about tempo choices. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Dudamel was so wonderful. You know, I, I mean, I mean, every single number, he seems to have his eye perfectly on uh, uh, on exactly the tempo that both the singer needed but but also the audience needed. Um, you know the second act quartet is is a good example where where I remember us trying out a couple of tempos in rehearsals and then him sort of committing to one and it's this sort of terrorist accelerando throughout the whole quartet mm-hmm. and it just not only does it make it easier to sing it makes it more fun on a dramatic level and and it was it was just an absolute joy. I mean, he's an unbelievable. Hmm. Oh my God. And how is his German? <laughs> oh, very good. I mean, you, you never you never expect these people to sort of to have perfect pronunciation. Yeah. But but he's got an incredible ear for the language. My God. I, I mean, I remember him giving out German notes, and and you know, there, there's always the 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 question with conductors like, oh, how how good is their German? You know, because yeah. with German conductors, you expect it. But then there are people who are, you know, not German. Um, and it's it's a very different. I feel like it's a very different language than Spanish. To teach, <laughs> well, to teach diction for them, Spanish, yeah. the priorities are different. I can't imagine, you know, Italian, an Italian conductor emphasizing the consonants quite so much as you do, particularly initial mm-hmm. consonants, as you do in German. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 Dudamel, I, I feel like he had exactly the right idea. You know, you, hmm. you, and you could you could hear that he had the flavor of the language in his ear the whole time. Hmm. Well, on Opera Box Score, we tend to bring it to uh, sports as much as possible. But since you just <laughs> since you just said the word flavor, uh, it reminds me that you also um, are really into food. And yeah. I just I just saw on Facebook that you ate at the Inn at what's it called again? The, the Inn at Little Washington. Okay, yeah. and that's in. Uh, Virginia? Yeah, so it's in Rappahannock County, and it's there are 13 three Michelin star restaurants in the U.S., mm-hmm. and only two of which are not in the Bay Area or New York area. Mm-hmm. And this is the only one of the 13 that could be reasonably described as being in a rural setting. It's a solid mm-hmm. 90 minutes outside of D.C., um, in, a, in a very rural region, and it's unbelievable. And Alinea is the other one, right? That's yeah, exactly. The, okay. So Alinea in Chicago, which is Grant Ackett's, and it's sort of that, um, what do they call that? Gas, science Molecular gas, gastronomy. Molecular gastronomy, yeah. I don't know if he's still doing that or if he's moved away from that. but Oh, no, that's still doing it. Yeah, that's sort of a scheme, you know. And this restaurant, how was, what type of cooking was was this, the inn? No, so so I went to Alinea for the first time just two months ago, and I think okay. it was super useful to to view the two relatively near to each other because mm-hmm. I think they're a perfect example of the sort of conflicts that like dining fans are dealing with, which is you know Alinea is much more focused this this idea of 
let me give you an experience that you've never had anything even close to, you know, completely reinvent ideas. And, and like I think Fidelia little, for the deaf. Exactly. And I think, <laughs> <laughs> and I think in a little Washington is much more about, uh, let's achieve sort of the apotheosis of French dining of, you know, every single ingredient is something that I have seen before, but never quite at that level, you know? And, and I think both of them are entirely reasonable things to want in a dining experience. But I think we have our preferences in the same way that some people prefer Italian to German opera, you know? Yeah. So if we could relate opera to um, <laughs> sort of the fads in, uh, you know, haute cuisine, yeah. um, what is molecular gastronomy in terms of music? And what oh. is... yeah. That's and and the type of cooking i mean french like classic french you know restaurant food is yeah. its own like clearly that's a genre and music you know and like italian food is so italian like the music and the food are so much alike it's fantastic you know yeah i think um, i think it's i think it's like you know uh in little washington's like watching Palas do norma <laughs> and I think, and I think, uh, uh, Alinea is more like watching Stravinsky conduct, uh, Rite of Spring. Okay. Uh, for the first time. You, you, you feel like you're watching history being made, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to in Little Washington, where I think you're, you're, you feel like you're you know, part of a witness, tradition, like you are, yeah, yeah like you're, part, a, you're witnessing an incredible chapter in a tradition yeah. that's already been going on. Yeah. You know? Hmm. I like that. And Weston uh, would really like that analogy too. Um, our um, new music guy on the show. And George, by the way, George Cedequist says hi. Oh, George. Yeah. Great to yeah. see him. Yeah. This is his show. I only, I only do the work, uh, but he takes all the credit. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ian Kajara, uh, thank you so much for being on Offer Box Score. Of course. Thank you. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Finalists for the Metropolitan Opera Eric and Dominique Lafont competition have been announced. There are 10 this time. Sopranos Rachel Blaustein, Esther Tonia, Alexandra Rush-Gazoff, and Julie Rosé. Mezzo-Sopranos Maggie Renee and Anne-Marie Stanley. Tenors Matthew Cairns and Daniel O'Hearn. Bass baritone Le Bu and bass Jonas Judd. The concert finale on the stage of the Met under the baton of maestro Marco Armiliato is on May 1st. Musicians of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra organized a fundraiser for the instrumentalists of the National Opera of Ukraine in Kyiv. Along with donations from Yannick Nezesagan and the Met's music staff, the orchestra raised over $17,000. Anna Netrebko has released a statement saying, quote, there have recently been inaccurate reports in the Russian and international media as to my personal and professional life and as to my future performances, end quote. The statement comes as Russian news outlets report The Soprano is performing at the Mariinsky Theater during the Stars of the White Nights Festival. Meanwhile, the French online magazine Forum Opera released an image of the curtain call from Monte Carlo Opera's production of Manon Lescaut. The photo includes Anna Netrebko standing under the image of a Ukrainian flag projected above the stage. 
in uh, worldwide news, hell has frozen over. Uh, <laughs> no, 80 years after Malta's Royal Opera House was bombed in World War II, the ruins have remained as an open-air performance space. But a recent government survey has revealed that the people of Malta prefer their opera with the roof on, with a majority of respondents requesting some kind of enclosure for the space. They're not unreasonable, however. 44% said that it would be okay if the ceiling was merely retractable. PSA from our friends at Opera Wire. Opera Wire disassociates itself from the Vincenzo Bellini International Vocal Competition. We recognize that any past advertising of this competition on our channels and the potential impact it might have had on the opera community is a mistake on our behalf. <laughs> and we apologize for this circumstance. We are taking all measures to ensure that this never happens again. Peter Gelb has revealed that director Simon Stone will return to the Met to lead another new production. In an interview with the New York Times, Gelb said Stone will stage Kaya Sariarjo's Innocence, which was first produced at the Aix-en-Provence Festival. And that vote of confidence comes just as Stone's new production of Donizetti's Lucia de Lammermoor opened at the Met last Saturday and was promptly booed by the audience. Portland Opera has announced its 22-23 season, which includes Dvorak's Rizalka, Bizet's Carmen, directed by Denise Graves, a new opera by Kamala Sankram about a Pakistani human rights activist who survived an honor-revenge gang rape, and An Evening of Terence Blanchard featuring Will Liverman and Karen Slack. An English national opera has announced its upcoming season, which includes Jake Heggie's version of the classic film It's a Wonderful Life, more of The Ring Cycle, directed by Richard Jones, ENO's artistic director, Annalise Miskimmen, directing Korngold's Die Tote Stadt, Janine Tesori's opera Blue, and ENO's first ever production of Gilbert and Sullivan's The Yeoman <laughs> of the Guard. It's about time. <laughs> In trade news, Malmo Opera has fired Danish CEO Michael Boyesen following accusations of sexual harassment uh, prior to taking up his position at the company. Karina Ostrander will take over as acting CEO. On the disabled list, both Nina Stemme and Lisa Davidson bowed out of the final performance of Electra at the Metropolitan Opera. They were replaced by Rebecca Nash and Wendy Bryn Harmer, respectively. And on this day, April 25th, in 1779, it was the first performance of Haydn's opera La Vera Costanza. In 1788, the creator of the role of Kaspar in Der Freischutz was born. That would be German bass baritone Heinrich Blume. In 1865, everybody's favorite Delib opera premiered, Le Boeuf à Pie. In 1875, French composer Jean Nougue was born in Bordeaux. He composed many operas. I don't recognize any of them. In 1881, it was the first performance of Gilbert and Sullivan's operetta, Patience, another one for GNS. In 1900, Italian tenor... What a day. I know. Bruno Landi was born. In 1913, we saw the premiere of Panurge an opera by Jules Massenet. In 1915, Italian bass Italo Taglio was born. In 1918, Swedish soprano Ashid Varne was born. In 1926, Puccini's opera Turundo premiered at La Scala. It's Turundo Day, everybody. <laughs> and in 1937, Italian tenor Franco Bonisoli was born. And that is your two-minute drill.
bit of Franco Bonasoli performing the riddle scene or the conclusion of the riddle scene from Turando from a 1986 production in London. See, I, I, I grew up in a dot family. We were, we, we, dot, were no. we were not messing around with this this silent T nonsense. Yeah. Turandot, the T's there. Puccini pronounced the T. Uh, uh, and uh, I love any chance to correct Oliver when I can. I know it's a debate. No, I but actually I think... am firmly a dot man. I actually think it is the T is supposed to be pronounced, but I it's out of habit now. You know? I would also say dot, <laughs> but it. no one's listening to me. I wonder what your opinion is, listeners. You let us know. Send us a voice memo, email us your hot dot or team dough. You know, if we were um, social media savvy, we would do one of those like Instagram polls. Like, you know, yeah. it's like <laughs> dot dough, dot dough, you know, so. I, I love that. Uh, man, it's, it's, it's turban dot day. It's also GNS day, apparently. Yeoman oh, of the apparently. guard, patience. I just... Yeah. My my cup runneth over. I'm, mm, um, gross. you know, it's gross. really it's really super exciting. Okay, I I didn't. So the Vincenzo Bellini competition. Okay, so this is just a quick thing. There was this competition, the Vincenzo Bellini International Competition. Apparently, it's run by sort of like a Boris Martinovich type of deal. Here we uh, it's go. A, run by a singer coach named Diana Amati who also runs uh, a magazine called Opera Culture News. Never heard of that. Um, so they were uh, apparently already collecting, uh, you know, member, uh, uh, what do you call it? Application fees. And um, yeah, they were advertising on Opera Wire and enough people uh, said, hey, this is a scam. And so Opera Wire took down um, the ads and put out a statement saying, uh, we don't want to associate ourselves with this anymore. <laughs> um, so anyway, I mean, that's just like, when you have so many people that are just trying to figure out a way to like get yeah. heard and get known, this is so, you know, taking advantage of whatever well, people it, can't really can't really afford it in the first place, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's also confusing too because uh, I I can't make make super heads or tails of it. So correct me if I'm wrong here, um, but there also seems to be two of this competition one of them might be legit one of them is definitely not uh if you google uh, the competition you get two websites one is still up the other one says and i'm looking at it right now thank you for your interest in our competition and we apologize for having to permanently close so yeah. i think that one might be the less uh legit one but the other one doesn't look super official either and there are a lot of red flags, like, you know, not having specific jurors named and, and things like yeah. this. But yeah. And Oliver, I appreciate you pointing out that this is actually a relatively easy way to make a quick buck, right? Mm -hmm. Initially, yeah. I'm thinking, like, this is quite complex. But actually, with, you know, thousands of emerging opera singers out there who could probably afford to throw, you know, 5, 10, 25 bucks in a pot for some sort of legitimacy, yeah, you can see how someone could make some money off of this. Oh, especially across like, you know, country lines, like, you know, it, it, it becomes so much harder to get your money back if you're if you're half a world away, you know. Well, it seems and, more exciting because you want to be in that other world and that's where mm -hmm. Yeah, break out in Italy. <laughs> Americans don't break out in Italy, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Another weird one. I feel like these are going to become more and more common. Uh, I mean, they already are more common. It, it's just funny to me. This is not the first time we've seen this uh, kind of strange yeah, it's thing. Like, it's happening. almost the anniversary of the Martinez. I, I know. It's <laughs> like like it's, someone was taking notes, you know. <laughs> what if what if uh, 
Diana Armati is actually the same person, the Martinovich woman, you know? Wasn't her oh. name Diana as well? What if she just changed her name? Oh, it's the yeah. perfect crime. <laughs> <laughs> I want to I, I want to get back to the Bel Canto to talk about mm. Lucia, but before we do, let's look at these season announcements pretty quickly. Portland mm. Opera, of course, the artistic director there, Pretty Gandhi. This is an interesting right season, show. right? Right. So Ruzalka and Carmen, uh, Carmen being directed by Denise Graves. I think that's her second go at it. I think she did it at OTSL or Des Moines or something like that. Like. It's not think, her first uh, yeah. Time, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, legendary Carmen. That's of, exciting. And, right, so, and then yeah. you know, two, two absolute you know world premieres. I mean, the the, the piece by um, uh, Kamala Sankaram is is a brand new opera, and that's clearly like a big focal point of the season. The Terence Blanchard, yeah, it's, like it's, uh, it's concert, but. inspired by the the so the show is going to be called Thumbprint. And it's inspired by um, the story of Mukhtar Mai, who was a Pakistani human rights activist um, who was the victim of a sanctioned, um, you know, revenge rape or like an honor, honor, revenge, honor thing. It's like most horrible things that happens in other parts of the world. It um, sounds like a pretty uh, heavy production, I yeah, think. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's commissioned by Beth Morrison Projects and it will star... Mm-hmm. Maya Kehrani, who is an incredible soprano, you can just look for her videos of her singing like Da Tempeste and stuff like that. She's fantastic. And uh, there are other people in the cast I don't recognize, but it seems to be an all South Asian cast, which is great. Yeah, that is good. I mean, of course, English National Opera's thing is that all their work is done in English. It's just like the Komische Oper in Berlin. All their work is done in, in German. So they're going with the the vernacular here i'm interested to see how tota stadt is going to play in german I, I also i can't believe that this ring cycle is in, in sorry, english you mean in english yeah, I, yeah. I, I, yes, yeah. I said i my mind jumped the tracks there i'm also i'm not sure that the richard jones ring cycle is in english i i don't know how that could be but isn't that the one that they did before like the famous one the... no no this is a this is a new production which i think is coming to the met well, there's uh, no reason English? why they can't. There's no reason why they can't sing it. I mean, if the production doesn't mandate, I, the I suppose. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, but then you have a whole bunch of other pieces of the repertoire which are written in English. The Jake Heggy piece, "It's a Wonderful Life." The Janine are you Tudor surprised piece. about all this? Right. I'm sorry, I'm I'm confused. Isn't that <laughs> hasn't that that been their model their whole time? No, no, I'm not surprised by it. I I think it makes great sense. I think it makes yeah. absolute sense. I'm sure. Tr- <laughs> A yeoman of the guard, of course, is himself in English. He just wants to talk about yeoman of the guard. It's 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 his favorite. There we go. Yeah, yeah. I will. I will say. I think that uh, uh, translating Dutota Stadt is going to be interesting because some of those uh, lines and the orchestration is it's kind of you. You really need those those German consonants to cut through so you understand what's going on. I disagree. I think that English actually and German have enough in common where it's not that hard. It's I think it's yeah, hard yeah. to get out of romantic language into German or into English. But yeah, that, that's the trick. German into English is yeah, it's not that not so hard. <laughs> now, if they're doing Akhenaten, they've done it before, right? It's so, a revival. Yeah. So how do they get around not singing it in whatever Egyptian or whatever language is? Well, I think yeah. you would let that slide, probably. Okay. <laughs> I, think you, I think you'd let that go. 
Okay. So here we, here we go. Lucia di la Mermoire. 2007 at the Met is when the Mary Zimmerman production first happened. I was Mary's personal assistant. I was not an assistant director at the Met. I was her personal assistant on the 2012 revival. Look, that production, it's very traditional, straight, straight down the middle. It's not super exciting, but it's well-crafted and done. The current production, the Simon Stone production, which opened late last week, is officially a capital M mess. <laughs> Have either of you read any reviews? I've read Have all the reviews. Any... It's been okay. so much fun to read these reviews. Why is oh, it? Hey, why is it? Some been, highlights. It been I'm I'm completely in the dark on it. So so hit me with everything you uh, you uh, you've got. Well, apparently there are these uh, projections that um, are very distracting and uh, causes the viewer to always just look at the projection and not look at what's actually happening on stage. And then the stage is rotating all the time. So it's like, I haven't seen it yet. And I'm, I am going to still go. Actually, I'm more intrigued. I'm still going to go to the HD broadcast. Oh, absolutely. But, of course I am. But, um, you know, it's updated to like the sticks in the US or Appalachia, which is like, whatever heroin heroin country or crystal meth or whatever drug overdose country and um it was supposed to be about lucia having a drug problem uh but i guess they took the drug element out of it uh after whatever workshopping or whatever so now it's not even clear like what her deal is and why she's hallucinating and uh yeah it's just it's it's supposedly just a, a visual mess and not everybody can act uh, there's mm. one of my, my favorite singers is in that show, but not known for his acting. Um, and yeah, it just, it just sort of, we, they put, they assembled a great bel canto cast and they're making it about this production and the stars can't shine. I'm good. Let me fill in a, a few more gaps here. So the reason the projections are distra- distracting, first of all, pick, close your eyes, picture in your head, the proscenium arch. Oh, I can see it. At Lincoln Center, at the main stage. At <laughs> uh-huh, the uh-huh, uh-huh. Imagine the top half of that. How many feet must that be all taken up <laughs> by a video screen, which is constantly yeah. active? I don't care if you have the greatest focus in the world. If there's a bright light on a big screen, you're going to look at it. I don't care if Medine <laughs> Sierra is on that stage. I don't care if Camarena is on that stage. You will not be looking at them because that's not how our eyeballs are wired. You're going to be looking at that screen. And that does a disservice. To those performers. Here's I think thing. it sounds neat personally, no, but no, uh... no, it's, no, it's that neat. It's that neat. We're not here for neat. Okay. Here, here's the thing. So, as Oliver said, the production is set in in a, a, a sort of unnamed American Rust Belt state. I'm going right. to say this: Simon Stone, stay in your lane. Mm-hmm. Stay in your lane. All right. Look, here's the thing, man. You're a, you were born in Switzerland. That's great. Good for you. You speak four <laughs> languages. You grew up in Australia. Fantastic. So the water goes Drink. down your toilet bowl the other direction. Okay, man, here's the thing. Stay in your lane. Don't come to this country and start doing pieces about some unnamed, unknown Rust Belt state. You don't know those people. You don't know their lives. And for you to put that on a stage is disrespectful. It's disgusting. And it's a disgrace. It is an app. You think I'm joking. Oliver and Western are laughing because they think I'm joking right now. I'm not. I'm hot on this. 
I think that is the biggest amount of BS I've ever seen, and I think you are doing an injustice to those people who live real lives. Putting drug use on the stage. Who do you think you are? And then you come, you come, listen, man, I know you've had a hard life too, because I did some research. And I'm sorry for you. You had a rough childhood. I get that. People boo this production. They're booing you. I get that. I don't agree with that. Think, man. Think before you act. That was a great uh, monologue. I think I've got you for the part of uh, angry director number one in our upcoming production of... uh, I felt like um, it was like a, a Fox News rant or something like that. You know, like <laughs> we'll do it like, live. No, it's just like this is America. You know, you can't. This is the greatest country in the world. You know. <laughs> no, I'm saying I'm saying do your research. You should you should look up Stephen A. Smith on ESPN. By the way, okay. You, I know Stephen Smith. So. If you want to, if you want to, uh, man, I'm spent. I don't know if I can talk uh, about anything else. On the um, Good night, George. We're gonna talk about just whatever. Uh, we don't need to talk about Anna Trepko. She's She's dicked her own grave, so. She's all oh. over the place. She's, you know, I. it's hard to tell what is desperation and what is uh, uh, what is her actual opinion at this point. And, you know, at this point, I don't think that anyone who's really, who really actually cares really is, you know, is just kind of given up on it. And that's kind of where, where I am. <laughs> all right. So Simon Stone, get this. <laughs> <laughs> Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Ah, good call, bad call. We're going to wake you up or take your home or fill in your lunch break wherever you are, however you're listening to the show. It's good call, bad call. Oliver Camacho. You know, if you are listening to this uh, when this comes out and you're in the Chicago area, get the to the Vivica Janot concert uh, this weekend with Third Coast Borough should be doing like all, you know, world, not world war premieres, but the all, you know, music has not been sung for like 300 years. That's her specialty. Uh, she's performing with Ruben Dubrovsky, who is a friend of the show. Um, he's the artistic director of Third Coast Baroque and also just got a job as the artistic director of some opera house in Germany. I forget which one. <laughs> but anyway, it's Vivica Janot. She's incredible. Go hear her. Weston Williams. Uh, regardless of what George may think about the production or apparently anyone who's seen it, uh, I've been enjoying uh, Nadine Sierra's Instagram of the production of Lucia in uh, um, uh, from the Met. And it's uh, it, it, I was just scrolling through Instagram one day and I just like scroll past uh, the most horrifying amount of blood I've ever seen in a Lucia production up close and personal, just lounging around, having a good time. And uh, I, and uh, there's been a whole series of that on her, on her Instagram, and I highly recommend you check it out because that might be the only enjoyment you get from this production I if mean, George it, is to be it believed. It literally <laughs> looks like uh, Carrie the film, like she's just like, like an absolute massacre. And, yeah. <laughs> it looks like a three year old eating a chocolate sundae. Discovered. <laughs> Speaking of three year olds, my twelve year old came to see the opera that I directed last week it's a brilliant piece called the falling and the rising music by zach redler libretto by jerry die and afterwards i said hey so you know what'd you what'd you think of the show and he says it was good but it's no hansel and gretel yeah he got you he he got you good man that hurts all right that's it for this week's edition of america's (laughs) talk radio show about opera our announcer he's norm waddell normwaddell.com if you are watching on TDO, make sure you subscribe 
to the podcast on Stitcher and Spotify. You get the full show by clicking follow Apple Podcasts. You just hit the plus sign. Again, send us a voicemail. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get that merch and that swag, Beer Coaster, OBS Lapelpin. Our creative consultant is indeed Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For our guest, Ian Kodzara, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera while you focus on the performance, not on a screen. We're back with an all-new show next week, plus you're going to get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more love for Simon Stone, who wrote this stuff. Join us. <laughs>